Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions. Bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you discover amazing music and artists from around the world. singer Dominique Dodge. Dominique has a deep love of the music and song traditions of Cape Breton, Ireland, and Scotland, and has a passion for melody-driven dance music and responsive rhythmic accompaniment, as well as the songs, airs, and 18th century harp music. A former Fulbright scholar, Dominique has a master's degree from the University of Limerick in Irish music performance and a bachelor's in Scottish music from the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow. She's also a dedicated learner of Scottish Gaelic as well. Dominique has extensive experience in traditional arts education and maintains a busy and vibrant teaching practice. She's been performing, recording, and teaching traditional music on both sides of the Atlantic. She has a new CD this year, uh, all in Scottish Gaelic, called The Language of the Strings. This year also marks Dominique's fifth year directing the Somerset Folk Harp Festival's Youth Harp Program. While Dominique was living in Cape Breton, she lived on a farm, and during the pandemic, While she can't be on tour, she's engaging with the land and spending more time farming and out in the wild and working with the land while singing Gaelic songs in the garden. It's also allowed her to pick up another instrument, the concertina. And in our chat, we discuss her love of traditional music, of community, of teaching, and sharing her knowledge to keep the tradition alive. The selections of music in this episode are from Dominique's newest album, which is available for purchase and download on her website. So enjoy this lovely chat with Dominique. Dominique, thank you so much for being here with me today. And it's snowy, <laughs> snowy part of the year. It's so beautiful outside and I'm so glad that you're inside nice and warm with your harp. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to talk to you about your new album. I'm so excited about it. It's such a gorgeous, gorgeous album. Can you just tell the listeners about it? Absolutely. Um, so my new album is called Canon and Kate, which means the language of the strings. And ever since I was a little girl, I have always loved Porsche de Bale, which is a Gaelic style of singing mouth music. And these are tunes which are dance tunes. They're jigs and reels and strathbays, but they have Gaelic words to them. And they're sung um, at tempo and often sung with percussive dancing. Um, and the rhythms of the words just perfectly um, recreate the, the feel of these dance tunes. And um, over the last four or five years, um, I've been really passionate about learning 
Scottish Gaelic, and um, I'm now a fluent learner and that language and the, the community um, which surrounds it in Cape Breton are a really big part of my life. So this album is um, sort of a, a place where all of those loves meet. And I I took um, sets of dance tunes and, and combined them um, just as a fiddler might combine sets of tunes. And um, though I do it in a way that's a little bit new and unusual. I play and sing the melody at the same time on the harp. And I also accompany. And uh, I brought in some wonderful Cape Breton musicians to do that with me. I've got two fiddlers and a percussive dancer and uh, a whole group of singers. Um, and I also, of course, included some archival Gaelic songs on that album. Wow. And how did you get introduced to Cape Breton and the, the music there? When I was a little girl, my great aunt and uncle had a, a farmhouse on Port Hood Island in Cape Breton. They actually still do. <laughs> um, and they would go up there in the summers. And so my family went up to visit and I heard the the fiddle music and, and the piano at the dances. And I saw the step dancing and I heard Gaelic sung and spoken and um, I was really smitten with it even then and so you know my sister started taking the the bagpipes and and I played harp and she played harp as well and we ended up going to the Gaelic College in St. Anne's and I spent all of my childhood summers up there learning traditional music and dance and song. During the, the clearances, um, particularly in the late 18th century, early 19th century, people in the highlands and islands were forced off of their land and out of their homes for political reasons. And um, many of them were put on boats and those boats, a lot of them landed in Cape Breton. And so there was a, a large and ever-growing population of displaced gales. And um, many of them stayed and due to the nature of the landscape of Cape Breton. It is an island and um, it's quite rugged terrain. They've they've maintained their traditions, their stories and their songs and piping and fiddling and dancing. Sadly, the harp did not make it across. <laughs> Along with them, the harp had died out just before these events occurred. But um, they, they've done a beautiful job maintaining a vibrant living tradition to this day. I know there's a lot of archival recordings that you referred to like where did you find them yeah so there's we're really lucky there are some wonderful resources for people who are interested in Cape Breton song and there's people doing really great work on helping these resources grow and be cataloged and built even now the ones that I relied on the archive of St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish is called Thru Nangale, and it's, um, or Gale Stream in English, and they have a wonderful collection. I also went to the Beaton Institute, which is um, affiliated with Cape Breton University, and uh, and then there's some other smaller sites in Trochich Etterin, which is the, the bridge between us, and I think that's all of the ones that I used. Oh, there's one more, McEdward Leach. He was a collector who, who um, did a lot of work in the Maritimes and some of the songs came from his collection as well. Maybe we could put the links in the show notes so people who are really interested in, in kind of diving in could really learn more about the tunes too. Do you go around recording some of the traditional singers and fiddlers yourself? You know... A lot of the music that I hear is just live music in community. So I might hear people 
um, singing and, and sharing music and song. I haven't done a lot of specific collecting in Cape Breton, in part because we do have such great resources. And I think it's um, the cultivation of a relationship with a source singer is something that, you know, it, it takes years and time to build trust and um, there's other people who are doing that work really, really well right now. And um, we have very few sort of native speakers of the elder generation. And so I think we're very conscious of not to overwhelm them sure. um, with, with those kind of requests. So I have many friends who are, who are elders and, and native speakers and, and beautiful singers. But um, if I know that other people are working with them in that collector way, I, um, I sit back and sort of allow that and give them space. So now is the harp more popular in Cape Breton? Are you helping to bring it to... So that's actually something I, I'm really passionate about is... So the harp did not make it across on the, the boats to Cape Breton. Um, but the harp is... It is the Gaelic instrument. It's it's one of the, the very first and the most important. And it died in Scotland too. And I I feel that you can still... You know, the music of the harp traveled. It went into the songs and it went into the music of the fiddle and the music of the pipes. And so the, I think Gales of Cape Breton have every bit as much right to their legacy and their heritage with the harp as do people in Scotland, where it also was lost for a time. And I, I'm i in a bit of a unique position as a harp player who grew up spending time in Cape Breton. Um, I went on to actually, after my childhood summers there, I became a teacher at the college and I, I've only missed two summers in Cape Breton in, in all of my <laughs> life since I was 10. One of them being this year with the pandemic, sadly. And, and I did live there for a number of years as well. And so, you know, with the harp, it, there's a certain barrier in terms of teaching it in that it, harps are expensive and they're difficult to come by and it can take some work to get some rentals into a community or in, into an area. Having said that, there are a few young harp players in Cape Breton, and there are people that I teach at the college year after year. And uh, the college itself has some some rental harps, which is great to when we can get those into the hands of young people. Um, that's something I really want to do a lot of work on going forward, particularly when the, the pandemic is over and I can go back and now that the world of online learning has opened up I think there's a lot of scope for it but when I play the harp in um with Cape Breton tunes I I'm mimicking the style of, of the fiddle mm. in my right hand and the style of the piano mm. in my left I'm much more familiar with the history of the harp in Ireland not as familiar with the harp in Scotland would you feel comfortable speaking a little bit about that Sure. I'm not a historian, um, but I do have a, a deep and abiding interest in the, the history of the harp in both Scotland and in Ireland. And when you go back far enough, it was one big Gaelic world. The Gaels came across way back from Ireland and they settled uh, in the Highlands and Islands and sort of spread out across Scotland. And the harp was an instrument that was played and celebrated by that culture um, and we do know actually there's archaeological evidence that the first the earliest evidence of the harp in Scotland is on a Pictish hmm. carving from around 800 AD so we know it was there for quite a long time and um, played by both cultures and I, I think there's a lot of um, speculation about where and how the harp originated but um, what I've come to understand is that 
many cultures that used bow and arrows would have developed harp-like instruments. And so it was, quote unquote, invented in, in various regions all over the world at different times throughout human history. And the other thing I, I might share about the harp, particularly before the, the tradition was broken when Gaelic culture was strong and at its height, was that it was a professional instrument. It was not what we now think of as folk music. It took many years to study to become a harper. And um, the music was sort of a a classical music. It was the art music, the high music of, of Gaelic culture. And so would they, they would have worked with the kings as well and in the courts and... Yeah, they would have had sort of high-level positions um, because of it being art music and being held in such high regard and taking so much training. Whereas now the, the music that we, you know, we play the dance music on the harp all the time, but I have to say there's something incredibly special about going back to the historic music and playing it. Those melodies are really different and they're incredibly beautiful. And I remember when I was at university at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, my teachers, you know, I was 19 and I just wanted to play the fastest reels and jigs all the time. And they they made me play <laughs> the historic music. I, I played music by Rory Dahl Morrison and Rory Dahl Cahan. And um, those are the tunes I still play. Mm. Those are the tunes that have stayed with me throughout those years there's really something quite special about them yeah there are some gorgeous tunes that yeah thinking about the mouth music and how that relates to language i think it's really an amazing example of how language influences music how does that language influence your playing you know i reached a point where i had been playing traditional scottish music and irish music as well since i was really young and I hit a wall one day where I felt that I could not go any further with the music as I wanted to play it if I didn't have the language. And, and that had felt like a really important door that had just been closed to me through years. And I, you know, I love looking through old collections and I love going to archival sources. And then I would hit this language barrier. <laughs> and, and I knew from listening to musicians, the ones I loved their music the most were Gaelic speakers. And I really wanted to be able to bring that level of depth and understanding to my music. And um, around that time, I moved to Cape Breton and I, I lived with a Gaelic teacher. And then the next year I lived with a native Gaelic speaker and I was working really hard taking all the community classes. There's a revival happening right now in Cape Breton with the language that I'm utterly committed to and that I love dearly. And as I became part of that, I realized that um, what I, you know, I, I started getting into Gaelic thinking, oh, like this is really going to help me understand my music. And then I actually realized that like the Gaelic and the, the culture and the language were sort of this beautiful foundation and way of being out of which the music and the songs and everything I love, the stories, all of that springs from there and that those things are very inseparable and very intertwined and um, also very fragile and, and very precious. That's wonderful and that people are really keeping it alive like yourself. And then you rec also recorded the album in the historic parish hall, the, the Glencove parish hall. And then you worked with other musicians in Cape Breton as well. How did, where it was recorded and the land and the people and, and all, like how does that affect your recording and the album and the music? Yeah, so <laughs> I recorded my very first album um, when I, right when I came out of the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and I was only 
maybe 23 and I didn't know much about recording <laughs> and um I did it in a way that was like just so utterly modern like every every track was recorded separately and was sort of painstakingly edited and at the end of it all it just felt very sterile to me and it didn't feel true to what you know what I heard in the dance hall <laughs> growing up and so I grew another 10 years um and maybe a little more and when it came time to make this second album I I felt that I had a much much deeper understanding of what it was that I was trying to do and and what it was that I loved and so I was very clear that I wanted to record an album that was true to the the actual live sound of the music I was making and um that was occurring in real time like a true experience for the listener and and I feel I remember talking to um Paul McDonald who's a, a wonderful Cape Breton musician and and also a studio engineer and he was telling me how people forget that part of the sound of Cape Breton music is the wooden houses and the mm. wooden halls and and that that was actually just as much a, a part of that character as the musicians and the instruments themselves and I really took that to heart and I was like I want the sound of an old village dance hall um so rather than record a totally dry sound in a sort of like very soulless studio environment <laughs> and then sort of put the reverb on until mm. we get the sound of the hall I I just wanted the sound straight up um and it was also you know traditional musicians make music live we make music in real time and when we do that we're it's we're continually responding to each other and it does come out a little bit different every time I think people sometimes don't realize the um, deeply improvisatory nature of traditional music and that that it is just so incredibly responsive and it, it's it's responsive within its structures but I find that's that's like the magic for me and so I, I wanted that reflected in my album so everything that you hear on that album happened in real time with extremely minimal editing if any at all and the sound that you hear is is the sound of the hall and that's right down we had a percussive dancer on the album as well and you cannot get the sound of one of those beautiful old hardwood floors anywhere else you know a wooden <laughs> board in a studio is not going to cut it it's like that leather sole on the hardwood is mm. just so beautiful i was so happy to capture that Wow. I was talking to Janet Harbison about about recordings, exactly what you're saying. Just so many people when they're doing recordings, they just want to almost show off or they want something that's perfected and they want to you know, like be really super clever, but it's not something that they would play live or in a session. Um, yeah. So a lot of that doesn't get captured um, in so many recordings. So I, you know, and you're right, there's, there's that when you're in a session and you're playing with other traditional musicians, it's, it's almost like in jazz, like you're trading eights and you're looking at each yeah. other and there's that 
that nonverbal communication of, of how you're going to go into another tune or, you know, so all the lift and, and things that you feed off of each other. I love that word lift. I think that's so, so important. And I, I don't think you can really get lift if you're not, you know, if you're playing with a group of people, like you need to all be in it at the same time to really have that true sense of, of lift. Mm. Um, and that's what gives the character and, and the life to the music. And I think sometimes it, it is easy as a musician to get sort of carried away by technical distractions and, and then to listen back and think, wow, that sounds like a washing machine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's not why we come to music to listen. Like we come to it for the life and for the experience and, and the resonance and that sort of responsive sense that, that it brings. And so, and I really love the, I love things that are rough and ready. Like Cape Breton music is so rough and ready mm. and it's got this edge to it. And it's incredibly hard to have edge on the harp, actually. <laughs> That's something I spend my whole life working to do. And, and I do, you know, I, I aim for that in my use of percussive damping in particular and in, in my sense of rhythm. Um, I feel like I'm a, a sort of rhythm first player when it comes to dance music and, and I feel that's as it should be. How did you come about to pick up the harp? So you said you you picked it up before you went to Cape Breton. I so. did. Yeah, a, um, a woman and her husband came to my school and he played the pipes and she played the harp and I, I saw the harp and I was really entranced with it. Hmm. And um, I had tried, I really wanted to play the fiddle but we could only find a violin teacher. <laughs> so I was two years into violin wishing I could play the fiddle and no one to teach me. And this harp teacher happened to be local. So I, I started the harp with her and um, immediately it was the Scottish and Irish music that I was drawn to. And I, I really haven't looked back hmm. since. <laughs> and then you went on to get your, your BA from the Royal Conservatory of Scotland that you, would, you had mentioned earlier. And that's really where you started learning the language as well? My first Gaelic class was when I was about 14 in Cape Breton um, with a teacher who has now become one of my very dearest friends. Um, I took Gaelic classes on and on, off and on throughout my late teens and 20s, but it didn't stick. I wanted it to, but it wasn't... Um, I didn't have anywhere to sort of use it and ground it and... When I moved to Cape Breton, they have a teaching methodology, methodology there called Gaelic Akbala, which is Gaelic in the home. And you learn through actions, and there's actually no writing and reading for the first maybe couple of years. Mm. And you, you learn by doing things that you would do in everyday life in the house, in a group, usually a mixed levels group. And you learn through use and repetition, which is how we learn our native language. And... I had about a week of that as an intensive and I was speaking. Wow. It was one of the most empowering experiences I've ever had <laughs> in my entire life. All these years of trying and knocking at that door with reading and writing and grammar and it not working. And then five days of Gaelic Akbala and I was talking to people with confidence. It was wow. really amazing. And then you furthered your education when, when you went on for your bachelor's degree. Were you double major in like in music and in language or you just study that as part of the curriculum you know in retrospect i would sal Morostek, the um only gaelic medium university in the world on the isle of sky um now offers a traditional music b 
BA, which I think I would have loved to have attended when I was younger, but they didn't offer it. And when I attended the program at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, um, that program was only seven years old. And this whole idea of creating a degree program in traditional music was just starting to come alive across Europe. Um, there's now wonderful programs in Scandinavia and Ireland, and there's a few in Scotland and, and England as well. Um, and that course, I was a primary study harp student and then secondary study Gaelic and Scots song. Um, and as it was a BA, we also got classes in history and in language, both Scots and Gaelic, and um, in things like um, ethnomusicology. And, and it really grounded the, the music that we were learning in a way that was really wonderful. That's why I went all the way over there, because I just wanted to go to the source mm. and I wanted to have a, a full picture of the, the music I loved so much. You went on to... University of Limerick, which I actually have uh, a master's in ethnomusicology from, I know that they have the program where you can choose like your favorite musicians to work with and train with. So I am curious who was on your wish list of people to work with you when you were there. So I went to UL about five years after I'd graduated from RCS. And I had been aware of the, the program at UL for a number of years and I really wanted to go and I just as a full-time self-employed musician it was way out of my reach and I was very lucky I applied for a Fulbright scholarship and it covered my entire degree program at UL mm. and it was absolutely extraordinary and I'm I'm so grateful for that experience it was it was really formative and it gave me such a deeper and fuller understanding of, of traditional music, both Scottish and Irish, having that experience. And of course, one of the best parts about that program are that you get to pick, I think it's something like eight to 10 people that you want to study with. And they do their best to get time with them. And it's, it's a whole day. <laughs> and there's usually only one harp player um, at a time. And so I had these wonderful teachers all to myself. <laughs> um, and in addition to that, I had weekly lessons with Michelle Mokahi, who is an absolute genius of a woman and a brilliant teacher. And she's, she's great on the harp, the concertina and the fiddle. And she's She's so smart and uh, and just a wonderful person. So that was such a treat. If I did this again, I probably wouldn't have picked any harp players at all. Hmm. Um, I I would have picked other instruments and, and learned from them. And I did that a little bit. But because I was relatively new to Irish music at the time, I wanted to work with Irish harpers specifically. Um, I I really didn't touch Irish music from the age of... 16 to the age of 28 <laughs> um and and so I still felt fairly fresh and I had a lot of repertoire to get under my fingers and so I chose my topic um was Grania Hambly who who has been a teacher and mentor of mine since I was about 18. I, I took some workshops with her then and and loved her albums and always listened to her albums even when I wasn't playing Irish music myself and I had two sessions with her actually I, I enjoyed her approach so much she's such a beautiful understated player oh, yeah. um and then of course Leisha Kelly um Leisha is is such a queen of rhythm 
and she's a queen of lift <laughs> and I, I really really enjoyed working with her and uh, we had a great time playing polkas and slides and, and really bouncy tunes and um, I also was lucky enough to study with Kathleen Lochnan um, who is also just such an elegant elegant musician and um and she has a beautiful touch on the harp and and she actually introduced me to one of my all-time favorite pieces carolyn's mr (laughs) o'connor which i now play almost daily um i also worked with fanula rooney who is um michael rooney is her older brother and uh, and she was in limerick at the time and she was a wonderful teacher and um i also I did some work with John Carty as well. So he doesn't play the harp, he, but um, he brought his banjo in mm. and and taught me a few tunes. And, um, oh yes, and Cormac de Barra. Also a, a brilliant, lively, oh, yeah. um, mischievous musician. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I even just thinking about this, it's it makes me smile because I had such a wonderful time learning from those people. It is an amazing program. And then they do their lunchtime concerts and... But you just get to just absorb so much music and so like it's just an incredible experience. It was incredibly vibrant and um, it was really nice to see how well funded and respected the Irish music program is at the University of Limerick. It's um, it's not hidden away in some back corner. It, it's in a brand new building mm. and it's um, just well administrated and and well thought of and really quite respected. And, and that was wonderful. And there are also many students. I think they have something like 245 students. Wow. Um, and that's BA and master's in their Irish music and dance Hmm. programs and I I think that's pretty thrilling it is amazing and being on the west coast of Ireland too there's just so much music I used to laugh we used to say that you can't throw a rock in that part of the world without hitting a brilliant Irish traditional (laughs) musician (laughs) 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 not a a bad problem to have but (laughs) for your final project at at UL um, at the master's program did you you did a whole performance and I did have a big senior recital and um, the way they do it is actually you you begin in September and then you have your senior recital the following September so you have the whole summer to to prepare your music um, and and get ready and then come back and play and um, I remember being utterly terrified I think it was one of the scariest things I've ever done um recitals are just scary there's no way around it and somehow you just you dig deep and and you you find your love of of what you do and what you play and you you pull it out and and do it for for everybody in that context but I have to say I I much prefer just you know playing for people who who just want to be there than (laughs) being educated true yeah and it's like just finding a way to enjoy it you know I always when whenever I'm in a position of of being on a stage and and feeling that like who am I to be here like I'm not good enough for this I always just reconnect to the very deep and abiding love I have for the people who taught me and the people who taught them and all of the hands that have carried and touched the music that I am playing and that I'm carrying myself and that that works every time <laughs> it's like it, it makes you realize with traditional music music it's not about being the best or the flashiest or the fanciest um it's it's about 
having respect and love and, and care for what you do. And, um, and I think that shines through anybody who has a deep love of their music. Oh yeah. And, and anyone who knows you knows that you have a deep love of your music and how you teach too. Um, I mean, cause I've seen you teaching at the Somerset Folk Art Festival and how much the students love you love you're getting them singing in in Scottish Gaelic you're getting them playing these beautiful traditional tunes and they are just so joyful and they adore you and they adore the music that you're sharing with them so that is it's incredible because I think children especially they know if you love what you're doing they can tell (laughs) They, they have like a little they can sense it but I mean, if you if you're presenting this to them in such a, a loving way, they see that, and and I and you can hear it in their playing too. So that's that's a testament to to you and your caring for and carrying it on too, which is beautiful. I I really really love working with young people. I just love it. It's um, one of the great joys of my life, and and I also feel my goal as a musician is to be a tradition bearer and part of that role is not just to learn but it's it's also to teach and of course it's it's to play and and to share and um i i just find that to be a really wonderful (laughs) nourishing experience um and you know the program at somerset which is really extraordinary and, and it's an opportunity i've just been so grateful to take part in um, because there are students from all different areas and different backgrounds and different genres of music. And, um, you know, some of them have never played Scottish Irish music before, and some of them are really deep into it. But I think there's something that you can learn, even if you're stepping outside of your own genre. Um, you know, this is this is indigenous music and and it's a, a culture with a long history. And there are many other cultures with wonderful long histories. And you never know where a student is coming from or what their background might be. But when you sort of step into one indigenous tradition and, and you learn that with respect, um, it starts to make you think about, well, where do I come from and where are my people from? And what languages did they speak and, and what traditions did they carry? And um, I think there's a real hunger for that in this country because so much of that has been lost. And, you know, in my family alone, there have been three languages lost in the last two generations. And I'm very keenly aware of that. And and I think about the songs that my Quebecois mm. grandfather would have sung and known and that aren't you know, they aren't open to me because my French isn't there yet. <laughs> Someday it will be, you know, I have Scottish people too, but um, I just, I, I feel very passionate about um, the sort of the maintenance and the caring and the respect um, for all traditions mm. and of the, the sort of lessons that, that they can teach us that we can't learn anywhere else. That was very beautifully put. How do you approach the singing of, of Scottish Gaelic with, with students who have never heard it before and some of them may not even have realized it's a language you know (laughs) so I mean not to I like to like approach music as a whole body experience um particularly with kids and um it's hard you know kids are asked to like sit for so much of their day in the pandemic or out of it and I'm really into having people dance and sing 
and play if at all possible. Um, and I, I believe very strongly that dancing and singing are a human birthright and um, that they're also things that our modern dominant culture tends to kind of crush. And, um, and nothing makes me sadder than, than meeting someone who's like, oh, I can't sing. And I'm like, it's not true. <laughs> like, yes, you can. And you're actually probably pretty darn good because statistically, like most of us are mm. pretty darn good at singing and, and even dancing if we allow ourselves to be or if we're in a situation that is sort of safe enough for us to allow ourselves to be. So when I work with kids, I mean, of course, with Gaelic song, I pick easy songs, of course, that are that are sort of the sounds are immediate and the words are short and Portugal are great for that. Mm. Um, and I love for them to learn the song and, and sort of sing not only the, the melody, but feel the rhythms of that speech. And then to make that connection of that coming onto the strings of the harp. And um, th there's nothing that, that illustrates it more beautifully than just doing it and embodying it. And, um, you know, I don't work with sheet music when I'm doing workshops or, or live teaching. I might send it afterwards for resources, but I, I really believe in carrying, um, you know, what, what you learn because that is, that's the way, <laughs> this is the way. Um, and, and dancing is part of that too. And, and I love teaching if we're doing jigs, I love to do a simple jig step mm. and just like get up and, and move a little bit and then feel how that relates to the harp. And, you know, even as a harp player, as a traditional musician, you know, your feet are part of your music too. Like when I recorded my album, I had a mic on my foot mm. and because I wanted the presence of that sound because that sound is present in real music sure, yeah. and it's part of the the percussion scene and you end up with the heart feeling like a one-man band because you've got your your melody and your bass and you're singing and then your foot's going at the same time and it's it's a lot to keep track of that's one thing I will say about the album was it was incredibly athletic um and difficult but I felt like this the whole was greater than the sum of the parts that it was worth trying all these things at once for the the um the sort of life that it brought. Yeah, that whole kinesthetic way of teaching the music and the rhythm. And, and you're right, for, for younger students especially, well, actually for any student really, just to feel the music is so important before, you know, to actually play the music. So it makes it alive. It's not mm. just dots on a page. And you're right, then it, it's carried with them and then they have it. So I, I bet some of the students that you've taught over the years still sing songs that you taught them, which is incredible so to you know to think about and I'm sure they do so and that's a gift that they have for the rest of their lives too so that's the joy of learning an instrument and learning how to sing is that you have that it's part of you I think too is I love the sense of um showing people that this music is part of a greater whole and that it doesn't just exist all by itself mm -hmm. out somewhere in some corner that it is it's relevant to song and to dance and to music, but more importantly, even than that, to community. And, and I think community is the driving force behind traditions of any kind. And, and it, what's what motivates people to, to be part of them and to carry them. And it's like, we don't just make music all by ourselves in our room. It's like, it needs to be shared. It needs to be heard. And that, that circle mm. needs to be completed. And I think when students, whether they're kids or adults, have a sense of, I'm learning this thing and, and it makes me part of this community. And there's something incredibly compelling about that. Oh, absolutely. And, and the harp especially it has this like special, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's, I mean, I play other instruments too, but I don't feel the camaraderie as there is in the harp community. 
Um, maybe you have a different experience with it, but, um, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I've actually, um, I've just taken up the concertina since the pandemic and, uh, I'm almost, well, I started in March. So (laughs) here I am, I've been taking lessons with Grania and, and that has been really fun to add a different instrument to my life. And I've wanted to play concertina for about 20 years. So Mm. this is a, it's a really exciting change. Um, and I haven't gotten that sense yet of what the concertina community is like specifically, but I can certainly say that the harp community is, is wonderful and it is, um, it is internationally bound, which I really love. Mm. um and and harp players you know from scotland and from ireland have strong ties to the harp community in the united states and to canada and and beyond i've um you know when the pandemic hit i shifted all of my teaching practice online and and that was a really big change for me i i had been tiptoeing towards performing almost full-time And I just had this new album released and I was so excited to tour with it. And it all came crashing down. I finished a tour like just in time. And like the next day, everything kind of shut down. Um, And so I had to really take a step back and think, okay, like how can I do what I do now? (laughs) Um, And so I, I moved my whole studio online and I started offering for the first time group classes um, in various subjects with guest instructors, um, which was actually way more successful and fun than I ever imagined it would be. And I've had students, um, you know, from New Zealand and from Italy and from Japan and Mm. the West coast of Canada and from Scotland. And it's amazing to sort of sign into one of these classes and, and see all these people from far away and sort of reach them and, and be in community with them as we share music. And then to draw in, you know, the guest instructors are people that I, you know, peers I really respect and, and admire and um, to give my students access to those teachers is also really, really special and, and it maintains those connections. So there is, um, there are still many opportunities for community building, even even as we're stuck in our homes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did notice that at Somerset over the summer, Kathy D'Angelo, who's a director, um, she wasn't sure how people would really take to it being online. But I have to say that there was so much positivity and joy. It was just a beautiful experience. It, it, it was so personal and heartfelt and people were just happy that they could connect with each other in that community. I think that's so, so important um, to find that community. Yeah. And it was beautifully, beautifully organized and run. Um, Kathy doesn't do anything by half. It was really smooth and really lovely. And I actually have students who who attended Somerset. And just last week, one of my students was like, oh, I w- went back and I studied up on my Somerset workshops over hmm. Christmas and I learned this tune. And she played a beautiful tune that she had learned from Grania. Oh, <laughs> and I was excellent. so impressed. And I thought, wow, like this is still, people are still learning from this all these months later. This is really extraordinary. Yeah. And that's one of the like positive things from having everything recorded and that you could go back and you can listen and, and really see people's hands up close and, mm-hmm. and just see what's going on with the music. Cause a lot of it is just listening. It's not a, um, you can't just listen to it once and then oh I got it, <laughs> you know? So, um, but that's part of the tradition is just kind of being immersed in it. Like you were, uh, with language when you're learning a language, when you're, it's just another language to be, as immersed in it as you can be. So you really take it to heart. And that's something that you definitely are doing. So I know it's a 
big, broad question, but what do you love most about teaching? There are so many things I love about teaching. It's, it's really difficult to choose. I think the thing I love most is the sense of the awareness that the music I learned from my teachers goes back to their teachers and their teachers' teachers and and through many, many hands, and that I am a link in that chain and I am passing that forward. Mm. And hopefully the the hands that I pass it on to will will do the same in turn and will carry it. Um, I love, I really enjoy just being present with a student and responding to what they need in real time. And I actually don't, for group classes, I do do quite a bit of teaching prep, but for, for private lessons, I don't. <laughs> my teaching prep is my practice hmm. and I'm very, very dedicated to my practice. And, and it gives me this really broad repertoire to draw from. And so when I come in and sit with a student, like I respond to how they are in that moment. And I, I give them some agency in choosing their music. I might play a couple tunes and be like, well, you can choose between these. And that's nice too, because there's a sense of ownership mm. of, of choosing and, um, you know, to bring something into your playing. And um, I, I just watch in real time and, and respond. I'm also a real technique geek. Mm. Um, I, my first teacher didn't necessarily have a super strong harp technique for traditional music. And I had to sort of, I was a hotshot 18 year old who had to rebuild. <laughs> and my goodness, that was painful. Um, but I had a very wonderful teacher who actually had a background in pedal harp who just, she gave me more than just techniques. She, she taught me how to think about my hands and how they move and about mm. efficiency and about reflexive playing. And um, it, it really, grounded me in a way that has just served me ever since and I've also done almost well I've done 425 hours of yoga teacher training as well and that has also given me anatomy and thought about human movement and um, I had in my early 20s a a terrible brush with tendonitis and carpal tunnel syndrome Um, mostly brought on by waitressing. I lived in Oxford, England at the time, and I was a waitress in a cafe. And I I was running around with plates, and it was bad news. (laughs) So, you know, once I fully recovered from that, you know, I couldn't play the harp for about five months, um, which to me was devastating. um, Because that has always been so much a part of my identity. And it it was a real wake-up. And, you know, when I healed from that, I, I just got so specific about my movement and my arms and my technique. And I'm, I'm the same way with my students. I'm just really into efficiency and safety and um, just things being really smooth because that that's that's what allows us to express the music and, and the way it exists in our minds and our hearts. can't imagine what it was like to not be able to play for five months. Ugh. Oh, it was like the saddest. It was really <laughs> sad. It was awful. And but it was it taught, I learned something from that. You know, I learned that no matter how good your harp technique is, if you, it's when you go to do other tasks that you have to be really careful. Mm. Um, things like chopping wood or, (laughs) um, you know, trying to be a waitress and that's like not a really good thing for a musician, you know, you know, depending on the, the carry load that you have, but it's something that, that I can look back on and be like, okay, I got through that and I learned something from it and I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you can warn your students about <laughs> being careful too. Yes. 
Yeah, it is, you know, as difficult as it was, one, to rebuild my technique at 18, mm. and two, to have the carpal tunnel and tendonitis repetitive strain injury in my mid-20s, I do feel that I can, having healed from all of those things, <laughs> I can speak to students from a place of experience, mm. and, and that tends to land a little bit more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Do you have any online events coming up? I currently have four online group classes that are just about to start. Mm. Um, we actually had our first session of Gaelic song and of Cape Breton tunes last Sunday. And then this coming Sunday, we're starting my youth group and um, a class called Music of the Irish Harpers, which I'm really mm. excited about. Um, our guest teachers are Anne Heyman and Siobhan Armstrong. Mm. And I have long been in love with the early music of the Irish harp and also with the wire-strung harp and how we might take sensibilities and techniques and, and ideas from wire-strung players and incorporate them into lever harp mm. arrangements of, um, of early music. So I actually kind of made that class for me. <laughs> and then also, of course, it's for the students. So that's starting soon, and I have my teaching term. I don't have any online performances scheduled at the moment. I am eagerly awaiting the reopening of our world. Mm. Um, and, oh, actually, that's not true. I do have a performance. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about it. Um, it's in March. It's on the 19th of March, and it's through Cabot Arts, and I can send you the link to that. Oh, great. Um, and, and I am really looking forward to it. And I actually have a new duo, a post-lockdown duo with a great fiddler called Emerald Ray. And um, I think we'll be turning out some new projects soon as well. We just had our first concert and she's a, a fiddler and a singer and um, really wonderful percussive dancer as oh, well. Excellent. But yeah, I, I'm mostly just counting the days until we can return to live music. And when we do... I plan to do a re release of my album because I, I got cut short from mm. ever touring that or sharing it with the world. So I'm, I'm keeping that material, material really lively so that um, I can be ready when, when the time comes. So hopefully soon, knock on wood, that we'll, <laughs> we'll be able to see you performing live. Would you do a North American tour? Would you do... I would probably be doing a New England regional tour and I'm definitely going to be going back to Cape Breton and the mm. Maritimes as soon as things become safe to do so because I really miss my community there. I've never been away from Cape Breton so long mm. since I was 10. Wow. <laughs> so it's been tough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know you have a beautiful garden. So I, when I lived in Cape Breton, I lived on a farm um, with a wonderful woman who, and dear friend, who is a Gaelic teacher and who grew all of her own food mm. and raised her own livestock. And I was so happy on that farm. <laughs> um, and we almost never had to shop. I mean, it was literally like, okay, we're going to go to the store for 50 pounds of flour and 20 pounds of sugar. <laughs> like, what else <laughs> maybe some coffee, but everything else, um, she had a, um, a cold cellar and she had two freezers full of local, you know, she had fish from the fishermen and she had her own pasture livestock. Mm. And, um, it was such a, an eye opener for me and coming from Vermont, I already knew a little bit about these things, but I had never lived so close to them. And I thought, wow, someday I'd love to live on a farm. And, and of course, Gales were, you know, agriculture was a real big thing for them <laughs> um, as a lifestyle. So a lot of the, um, 
the language that I've learned in Cape Breton is actually around farming and, and sort of homesteading things. And so as a touring musician, it's pretty hard to sure. do any of those things. And the pandemic hit and you know, my partner is a, um, he's a fine artist. He does landscapes in the 19th century style. So oh, we're wow. both working from home and we kind of looked at each other like a weekend and I was like, oh, let's build a cold frame. And we did. And that cold frame turned into like a stone terraced garden. <laughs> and we, we dug up like everything and wow. planted it full of vegetables. And, you know, he got a chainsaw and, and <laughs> we cut a whole bunch of trees and cleared land and we're clearing for pasture and we put in you know, blueberries and cherries and all kinds of perennials. We started mushroom logs and we got chickens mm. and, um, and fell in love with chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're finally getting our eggs eight months later and the birds are just delightful and they've been such good company, but it's actually been really incredibly grounding to, um, engage with the land in that way and that's actually something you know the songs that I sing and the, the stories that I know and the music that I play all of it is deeply connected with landscape and with farming and agriculture and, and also you know with the wild and and so it actually felt really natural to be sort of moving into these rhythms of just working with land mm. and um and also like singing Gaelic songs like out in the garden where they're kind of meant to be sung so it's um it's really been sort of a, a full circle <laughs> turn for me coming back to this um farming life wow that's such a beautiful gift that you know a, a year at home can kind of uh give you to slow down a little bit yeah so, um it's it's allowed me to pick up a new instrument, which mm. uh, which has just been so wonderful. I love the concertina. It's the opposite of the harp. <laughs> it's, it's tiny, it's portable, and you don't have to tune it. I'm I'm there, um, and and that's been great fun. And and working with the land has been wonderful. And mm. I think when I return to um, to touring, I'll I'll be doing it in a way that still allows me to you know, to keep my chickens and to farm. Mm. And I, I probably won't be away for as long as I was before. And I might be a little bit more intentional about, you know, how long I'm out and where I go. And I think that will be a good thing, actually. Where can people find you and find your music and buy your album? And <laughs> so I have a website and um, it's it's designed by a wonderful Canadian um, designer, Sarah Rankin of Mabu. And my album is there. You can get a digital digital version of it and, and the booklet as well. And you can also order hard copies online. And um, at the moment, that's the only place to get my album. I probably will be putting it up on other um, platforms eventually, but um, those platforms are much harder on the musician. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping it on my own site for a little while. <sighs> and then I have a YouTube channel. And there's a number of videos on there. I'd say those are the the main places to find me. I'm of course I'm on social media as well on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you so much for oh. for having me and and for doing this whole series. I'm I really am excited about listening to the perspectives of different harpers and their stories and their relationship with their music. And um, I'm I love getting that window into people's lives. I think it's wonderful. So oh, thank you. Me too. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for being with me here today. It's just so wonderful to finally get a chance to sit down and talk to you because when I see you, it's at Somerset and we're both so busy. So it's so nice to actually sit down and and have a really nice 
chat with you. So hopefully we can do it again in person. Yeah, I I mean, I had no idea that you had gone to UL and that we shared that background. And um, now I want to talk to you a whole lot more about (laughs) all of those things. And I really hope we get the chance. I'm I'm really looking forward to the next time we can gather. Me too. Thanks for listening to Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions podcast. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. 